Would you join me by looking at Leviticus chapter 1 in your Bibles this morning? Leviticus chapter 1. Imagine if you were invited to the White House in 2007 in order to meet President Bush. How would you think about that that invitation, that arrangement? Would you just come in however you felt comfortable? I think if if you're like me, you would find out exactly what he expected of you. So you would find out from the staff what you were to wear, how you were to act, and so on. And when it comes to our relationship with God, it is actually um, similar to that, but actually much more important because President Bush at that time was the president of one country, and we could say perhaps the, the most influential leader in the world, but God is actually the most important and the supreme being in all of the world, in all the universe. And when we think about coming to God, it's actually more important than us going to meet the president. Because, and it's different because when we come to God, we are actually sinners. And so it would be more like getting an invitation to the White House to meet the president after having killed one of his family members. We wouldn't walk into the White House and say, Hey, big guy, how's it going? What's your dinner? You know, we have our shorts and our tank top type idea. And, you know, what's going on? What, show me show me around. We wouldn't treat that situation flippantly if we had murdered one of his family members. Instead, if we were seeking forgiveness from the president, we would more likely bow down in shame and beg for his forgiveness. We live in a culture that minimizes how we come to have a relationship with God, don't we? Many churches will tell you that God will accept you as you are. That that can tend to be the the um, the motto of many churches: "Come as you are; we'll accept you." You know, God will accept you, whoever you are. And if by that they mean that God will accept even the worst of sinners, then I'm in agreement with that. They're right. But I'm afraid that their profane worship, some of these churches who who call out to people in that way, come as you are, I'm afraid that their profane worship speaks much more loudly than their words. You see, because churches have adopted, in many cases, a business model and have made the, the, the uh, worshiper into a customer. And since... In our culture, the customer is always right. Then churches bow at the desires of the worshipers. And so you can come to a place like, or you can go to a place like Kensington Community Church. And you can hear secular songs played by a live band. So that the worshiper, so that the seeker will feel comfortable Now, I'm not talking about secular music with Christian words. There are churches that do that. But these are actually secular songs that are being played in their worship services. Songs like Trojans by Atlas Genius or Thunderstruck by ACDC or Born to be Wild. And if you don't believe me, you can simply go to their website. Please don't do that now. And... um, 
And you can watch any number of their services, and they start out almost every service with a song from a second. And, and the reason for that is that the worshiper feels comfortable. We want to meet people where they're at. Come as you are. You know, just it doesn't matter. God will accept you. And in the process of exalting the customer, as churches, we can actually marginalize God to a place of and, and move him to a place of non-importance. When he deserves in our worship to be at the place of supreme importance. Now, our church is far away from the practices of Kensington Community Church, but there are other ways that we as a church can minimize our sin and, co- and can profane the name of God in our worship. And so we have to think about these things. And I think Leviticus helps us to see that our sin has created a complex barrier between ourselves and God. And that God has meticulously laid out how He desires to be worshipped. How we must come to Him. In Leviticus, there's no talk of God saying, you know, just come as you are. We'll accept you, however, whatever sacrifice. You know, if it's, if it's not what I asked for, it's okay, I'll still accept it. That's not the case at all. And the reason for that, I think, is because the truth is, communing with God is not a small thing. It is not insignificant. We don't just flippantly come to Him however we please. And Leviticus helps us to, sh- helps, to help, helps us to see that our sin has created this complex barrier between us and God and that God designs for us to worship Him in a specific way. So let's read the first nine verses of this book. Uh, we're actually going to cover through the first part of chapter 6, but I'm just going to read for you the first nine verses. So Leviticus chapter 1, and I'll begin in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar of a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord." I think what we learn in these first six chapters is that we can't come to a holy God apart from a proper sacrifice. We cannot come to the holy God apart from a proper sacrifice. This text begins with a summary of all the offerings. So, while the heading of your section at Leviticus 1.1 
may read the law of burnt offerings like mine does, the burnt offerings actually don't begin until verse 3. So verses 1 and 2 are a summary of chapters 1 through 6. Verse 2 reads, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering, okay, just generic offering, to the Lord, you shall bring your offering. And now what Moses is going to do for us, he's going to lay out what kinds of offerings are acceptable to God. The first one is going to be the burnt offering, which begins in chapter 1, verse 3. So how do we look at this section of all these offerings, which are, in our minds and in our practice, they're obsolete. Right? We don't come to church with an offering. We don't, we don't have to go to an altar and offer a burnt sacrifice. So how can we think about these things? I think the most helpful way to look at these first six chapters is to, first of all, explain what each of the offerings are and what they, and what they look like for the Old Testament Israelite. Okay, so what, what exactly are they? And what do they look like for the Old Testament Israelite? And then second, I want to show you why these offerings are significant for our understanding. Why would we ever take time to study offerings that are obsolete? All right, so let's, let's start with an explanation of the offerings. There are three main kinds of offerings. There are the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the peace offerings. And so we're going to look at the burnt offerings first. The burnt offering is, is, is spelled out for us there in chapter 1. So first, what does the offering look like? What does the burnt offering look like? The burnt offering was the most common kind of offering that an Israelite would offer. In Exodus 29, it tells us that they would offer these morning and evening, and even more so on Sabbath days and special feast days. This offering was supposed to be a male without defect from one of their from their herd, so it had to be a cattle, uh, one of their cattle or sheep or goat. And what we should notice about the types of offering that are allowed here in the burnt offerings is that these are all what the Bible is going to call clean animals. And we'll, we'll learn about that more as we get into Leviticus. But why is that important? Why would it be important for us to understand now that they're offering up some of the clean animals? Well, we're going to find out later that that's the only type of animals that they can eat. And so as they're raising up their flocks and their herds, they're having to give some of their own to the, for, for, the sake of, uh, for the sake of sacrifice. It would be one thing if God told them to offer up a pig, right? An unclean animal or a camel or something. Well, they couldn't eat those animals. And, and so the only use they would have of those is either for transportation or for selling them to other people, to Gentiles. But they couldn't eat those animals. But the animals that they were raising, many of them in order to eat, were actually being used to give up. And, and did you notice that they were burned up? The entire animal was burned up and smoked to God? They couldn't keep a portion back and say, well, I can enjoy this for my dinner and I'll give some of it to God. Now, this was a significant expense for every person from Israel. Now, God did offer some uh, a lesser sacrifice, a, we could say a cheaper sacrifice for someone who didn't have the, the, uh, the finances to be able to, to have one of these from their cattle or herd or something. In verses 14 through 17, we see that they could also bring a bird if they were poor. So 
God would allow that. But again, this is still something that they would they would normally be able to eat. Now the practice, what, what did this look like? What did this burnt offering look like? When they came to the tabernacle, what actually happened? Well, the, the offerer, the worshiper, would lay his hand on the head of the animal. And that would show that, that he was, basically this animal was becoming his substitute. This animal had to die for the worshiper's sin. And so they would slit the throat. The person, the worshiper, would actually have to slit the throat of his own animal that he had raised. And then, um, and then the priests would take the blood and sprinkle it around the altar. And then the worshiper would have to cut up the animal into pieces. And then the priest would take those pieces and put them on the altar. And on this specific sacrifice, the priest would arrange the meat on the altar and burn the entire the entire animal up except for the skin. And we'll see that. I'll just show you here in verse 9. Its entrails, however, and its legs, uh, he shall wash with water and the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it uh, on the altar of a burnt offering. Uh, actually, it doesn't say it there. I think it's later on when it talks about the priests in chapters 6 through 8 when we see about how the priests handle it. We'll see that the priest is actually able to keep the skin of the burnt offering. That's the only thing, the, the leather, the, the, um, the hide. So what does this offering do? What does the burnt offering do for the worshiper? The purpose of this specific offering was to atone for unintentional sins in general. Atonement was seen when the offerer would lay his hand on the head of the animal and the animal would die in the offerer's place. Remember how many times I said this happens? Daily, twice a day. So they would be seeing this sort of thing happening all the time. And so this burnt offering was a, was a picture for them of how serious their sin was before God. But notice, God provided a way to be pleased with their offering. Look at the end of verse 9. An offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. The end of verse 13, it is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And it says the same thing in verse 17. That is that through the shedding of blood, God granted forgiveness. That God provided a way for the worshiper to be right with Him, to, to be reconciled to Him. We'll talk more about that here at the end. Okay, so that's the first one, the, grain off, or the, the burnt offering. The second is the grain offering in Leviticus chapter 2. The grain offering. What does the offering look like, first of all? Well, the offerer would bring either uncooked fine flour, verses 1 through 3, or he would bring some baked bread or some kind of cake in verses 4 through 10. And it was to be mixed with oil, seasoned with salt, and then given to the priest. And then the priest would sprinkle, would break it apart and sprinkle it on the altar. Some of it was kept for the priest to eat. Remember, this was the priest's only form of living. God actually provided for the priest by giving some of the the offerings, not the burnt offering, remember? But this offering, they were allowed to keep a portion of it for themselves to eat. And there were some restrictions to what kind of bread could be brought, what kind of fine flour, verses 11 to 13, tell us that there could be no yeast in it and that there could be no honey, not that these things were inherently evil, but, but that God wanted to show them that He was setting them apart for a specific purpose, that they were different from... The, the, the world around them. Notice in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 2 that God expected the best of their best. Also, if you bring a grain offering, 
of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire. You know, God, if you were really thinking about us and you were really concerned about about us, then wouldn't you just allow us to kind of just give you some of our leftovers or some of the stuff that was going to be taken out and put into the compost pile? God expects the best of the best, doesn't He? The, the ripened, when it's just newly ripened, when it's fresh, this is what I expect for you to offer to me. God didn't want their leftovers or something that was going to be thrown out. He wanted their best. That's the grain offering. What does this grain offering do for them? This offering was a thanksgiving offering. It showed the dedication that a person had to God and to, to following God and following God's work. And so the offerer would offer the best of his grain and, and this would show his devotion to God. In Malachi, you remember what would happen over time is they would start to offer things that were you know, like the lame animals, the ones who were blind and the ones who had defects. And God said, I don't want that. Try giving that to your governor. See if they'll accept that as a gift. I'm the God of the universe. I deserve the best. And He does. And so this actually shows the devotion that a person would have to God, that they would be willing to give their best. And the result, like in chapter 1, is that God is pleased. Look at the end of verse 2. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Verses 9 and 12 say the same sort of thing. That it will be a soothing aroma to the Lord. It is something that is most holy to God. He, he accepts their offering of sacrifice. In this case, a grain offering. In chapters 3 through 6, we have the peace offerings. The third kind of offerings. The peace offerings. These offerings were designed to rejoice in communion with God. And I believe that there are three types that are laid out. One is called the peace offering. Another is the sin offering. And the third is the, the guilt offering. And we'll talk about each of those in turn. What you should notice about the peace offerings is, is that if you look in verse 1 of chapter 3, Leviticus 3, 1, it's always mentioned in the plural. But if you go back and look in chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 2, verse 1, and any other offerings that are mentioned, they're always mentioned in the singular. So the peace offerings actually included more than just the one offering that, that was designed to reconcile themselves with God. It included multiple kinds of offerings. That there was this gap between the people and God. And in order to be reconciled to God, there were several ways that they could do that. Chapter 3 talks about this first kind. It is a peace offering. What does it look like? This offering is very similar to the burnt offering. It required an animal without defect from the herd or the flock. You see that in verse 1. And verse 2 tells us that the offerer would lay his hand on the head of the animal. He would kill it. The priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar. Sounds very similar. The difference between this and the burnt offering is that this one would allow a person to bring a male or a female. The male was actually more desirable because of its ability to... Um, to, to produce meat and to, to be able to reproduce. Instead of having the whole animal burned up before the Lord, this offering was shared, so to speak. So remember in the burnt offering, everything was burned up except for one thing. What was it? Remember? It was the hide, right? The skin. But in this one, there's some of the portions that are left behind. Instead of having the whole animal burned up in the peace offering... This offering was shared, so it showed this communion with God. You see, you see why it's called peace offering? 
Because now it's not atoning necessarily for sin. It still has that picture in it. But it is granting a relationship with God so that it's kind of like God is taking a portion of it and the offerer is taking a portion. In fact, some of it's going to the priest as well. But what we should notice is that the best portions are left for God. Look at verse 3. From the sacrifice of the peace offerings shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. And you might think, well, how could the fat be the most important? I hate gristle. You know, that's, but that's not the idea. Instead, it's, it's more like the flame and yawn of the animal. That's the part that is given to God. You know, the part that we would take the most pleasure in eating is the part that's offered up in smoke to God. The rest of it uh, is given to the priest. The priest takes a portion, and then um, and then the offerer takes a portion. Look at the uh, look at verse 17. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall not eat any fat or blood. The implication here is that anything that is left other than the fat or, or the part where the blood is drained out, after the blood has been drained out, that's left for you to eat in this specific offering. But the best portion of the meat is given to God. What does this do? Well, I've already alluded to it. The peace offering was designed to show that these people could now have fellowship with God. The point was that in order for a person to have fellowship with God, in order for a person to have peace with God, there had to be an acceptable blood sacrifice. And I think you're already starting to see the significance of it for us, aren't you? And in order for us to have peace with God, there has to be an acceptable blood sacrifice. The fourth type of offering, the second under peace offering, is called the sin offering in chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 13. Now, this is quite a long section, and the reason for this is because it, it, it distills down to each category of people what their offering was supposed to be. So, for example, look at verse 3 of chapter 4, and we'll see what the priest had to bring. If the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting, before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. The priest was not exempt from bringing offerings for himself, was he? He was a sinner too. And so he had to make reconciliation with God for his sin. And so he had to bring a bull without defect. The next category is the congregation. What was the congregation to do if they sinned as a group? Verse 13. Now if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and they become guilty. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. So there is actually a way that a whole congregation of people, a whole, a whole uh, assembly multitude of people could actually sin in defiance against God. And God demands a sacrifice be made for that as well. And that specifically is a young bull. So the priest was a bull without defect, the congregation a young bull. The leader in verses 22 and 23 was supposed to bring a male goat. When a leader sins, verse 22, and unintentionally does any of all the things which the Lord God has commanded him not to be done, and he becomes guilty, 
If his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring his offering for his offering a goat, a male without defect. Then the common person in verses 27 to 35 was supposed to bring a female goat or a lamb. The poor person, turn over to chapter 5, verse 7. This is all under the sin offering. Chapter 5, verse 7, If he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that which he has sinned. Two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Okay, so God made allowances for people who didn't have the means to bring some greater animal. And then for the desperately poor person, verse 11, he was allowed to bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour. And we might think a little handful, you know, just bring enough that you fit in your pocket. This is actually three pounds of flour for a, for a desperately poor person. And yet God provided a way for them to have a right relationship with Him. But even with their gift, it wasn't a small thing. Think about a, a desperately poor person. Where would they get the finances to be able to, to get that much flour? God is actually going to provide a way for them to get that because He's going to allow them to to take the leftovers from from those who are um, who have wheat and so on. And then for each of these sacrifices, whatever category of of life you are in, the offerer would lay the his hand on the head of the animal, and then he would kill it. The priest would take the blood, sprinkle it on the altar, and then the offerer would have to cut up the animal. And then the priest would take the meat and put it on the altar. And the result was that God was pleased. At the end of verse 35, notice chapter 4, verse 35, Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. So God provided a way for them to have atonement made and had this gulf fixed between them. And this provided atonement for their unintentional sins. If you were to read down through this passage, chapter 4, 1, verse through 5, 13, you would hear the phrase or read the phrase multiple times, unintentional sins. And this is, this is an important point that we ought to understand because when it comes to sin, intention is very important to the nature and gravity of our sins. But intention is not the only thing. We sometimes say that ignorance is bliss. You know, that we, we don't want to know because then we'll have to know what we're responsible for. But, but God actually demanded that they know even the things that they didn't intend to sin against Him. And so when they found out about those, they had to come and offer a sacrifice to God. And that's one of the effects of sin, that it actually deceives us as sinners to think that the only things that are, are stopping us from having a right relationship with God are only the things that we see and do purposely, that we do intentionally. And yet what God says is, no, I am concerned about your unintentional sins. See, there will be lots of people on the last day who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these great things in Your name? And the Lord will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. How then can we know what God considers to be obedience? How can we know what God considers? Well, we have to know on the basis of what He has revealed. So what has God told us 
that we ought to be doing. You know, we say ignorance is bliss, or we use the phrase plausible deniability. In other words, if you know something that I should know, but that information is actually going to force me to act in a way that I don't want to, then I don't want to know. But what God is teaching us here is that every day we commit sins unintentionally in addition to the ones we do in a premeditated sort of way. And yet those sins still require that we have an atoning sacrifice. God just doesn't overlook them. Well, you know, you kind of didn't know. You didn't understand what I really wanted. So I'll just kind of overlook that. But no, God demands that a blood sacrifice be made for all of our sins, including the unintentional ones. We're going to find out that that there are some situations where where there are some sins that committed, and once they're recognized, they have to be they have to be atoned for. And what we should see from this is that we are constantly falling into another area of sin and uncleanness before God. And all of these, all of these, for us as worshipers, does require an atonement. The final type of offering is found in chapter 5, verse 14, through chapter 6, verse 7. 5.14 to 6.7. It's the guilt offering. What does this offering look like? This offering included uh, an atonement for both in unintentional and neglectful sins. And also for intentional and willful sins. So the unintentional and neglectful sins are at the end of chapter 5 and the intentional and willful are at the beginning of chapter 6. It required a ram without defect. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring a guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation in silver by shekels, in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. This offering... This guilt offering included both restitution to God, with God, and restitution with the offended party. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. Then it shall be, when he sins and becomes guilty, that he shall restore what he took by robbery and what he got by extortion, or the deposit which was entrusted to him, or the lost thing which he found, or anything about which he swore falsely. He shall, notice, make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. You see, what God was doing was not only making a right relationship with Himself and the people, but He was actually establishing a right relationship with the people among themselves. So that when they stole something from another person, they would have to bring a guilt offering before the Lord, but at the same time, they'd have to bring restitution. Whatever they stole, plus 20%, had to be given back to the person from whom they had stolen. This offering would make atonement for those who had violated the covenant with God and those who had violated the covenant with other people. And so what we learn from this is that while we offend other people with our sins, God is always the most offended party. We may think that it's, you know, when we get in a conflict with another person, that that's the biggest thing going. And then when we settle that conflict, when that's resolved in some way, we may think that everything's okay. But actually, when we've sinned against that person, we've, all, we've also sinned against God. And He's the most offended party in all of our sins because He is holy 
And He demands righteousness. He demands a proper blood sacrifice be made for all of our sins. So we looked at the explanation of the offerings. That's a little bit more tedious to go through. But now we want to think of the significance of the offerings. Why is it important for us to understand what these offerings are? I said that we can't come to God apart from a proper sacrifice. So what does that mean for us? I think it means at least two things when we understand their sacrificial system and what God has provided for us. Number one, it shows us the depth of our sin, doesn't it? When we start to see how serious God is about sin, it helps us to see how serious our sin is to God. That there is a great gulf that is fixed between us and God. That our sin is much worse than we probably think. Our sin creates a a web of trouble and deceit and it's very difficult for us to restore ourselves to God and to others. For example, I mentioned the community sins before. We, we probably don't think about this a lot because we understand, rightfully so, that each person is responsible for his own sin. But there is a, a sense in which our sin is much more complex than that, that we can actually, that, that we can actually condone sin that's done within a, a, a given community, whether it be a church or whether it be a family or whether it be a whole country or the world in general, that, that our sin actually affects more than just us. Daniel Aiken in his theology points out that we think and act not only as individuals, but also as families and fellow citizens. And what we do affects one another. And we do have a responsibility for one another. When Adam sinned, it affected all of his descendants, didn't it? We do not die for the sin of our parents by any means. We die for our own sin. But the sins of our parents do affect us and can lead to our condemnation. Similarly, a society which condones or even encourages sin has to answer to God for those sins that are committed in its midst, even sins of which it is largely ignorant, that we contribute to, to, the, to the communal sins, so to speak, in one way or another. One example of this in the Scriptures might be from Joshua chapter 9. Remember when the Gibeonites came and pretended to be, like, pretended to be from far away And so Israel made a covenant with them. They were not supposed to make covenants with people from within the Canaanite area. And uh, the Gibeonites were actually from a a nearby area. And so this sin actually affected the whole nation. Even though it was a decision that was made on the part of the leaders, it had ramifications and required atonement for the whole nation. So God takes our sin very seriously. And, And the communal sin is just one example of that that we don't often think about. But when we think about our individual sins, we shouldn't just brush it aside and say, you know, oh well, to err is human. Or as if God is just thinking, you know, you're just such a cute little creature. And I can allow you to make your little messes now and then like a parent would say to his newborn or her newborn. That's not how God looks at our sin. Like He just kind of sweeps it under the rug. It's no big deal to me. Instead, we need to see, see the, the gravity, the serious graveness that God, uh, God sees in our sin, that it's no small matter for us to sin against God. And the picture of that, when we read through these six chapters, is, comes out very clearly because 
time after time, animals are dying. Blood is being spilled in the place of worshipers who should have died because of their own sin. So the first way that this is significant for us is that it shows us how serious our sin is before God. The second way is it shows us the greatness of our Savior. It shows us the greatness of our Savior. We see our sin and all of its ugly filth when we start to read through these first six chapters. We see the many facets uh, of our sin and all the, the various sacrifices are, that are required for the different kinds of sins. Did you notice that no one Old Testament sacrifice could cover all that we needed to come to God or all that an Israelite needed to come to God? They couldn't just come and just say, here, here's my one sacrifice. Or say, here, just wave this magic wand over all my sin and say, you know, hocus pocus, my sins are forgiven. Our sins are so varied and so deep and, and so filled with, with, with trouble that we need multiple sacrifices to atone for our sins. At least Israel did. And so these sacrifices actually had different functions. There wasn't just one sacrifice for all sins. Instead, it was many sacrifices for all different kinds of sins. For example, the, the sacrifice would, would function as a substitution. Remember, that's the whole laying the hand on the head of the, the animal substitution that that had to die in order for the offerer to live and then there was the function of removal of guilt that because of my sin I deserve to pay the penalty of it and yet in my place this animal is going to die and when that happened for the Old Testament Israelite it actually appeased God it actually uh, removed the guilt that the worshiper had before God. In God's eyes, they were cleansed. They had genuine forgiveness. The, the sacrifices also functioned as peacemakers. They brought peace between God and the worshipers, right? The worshiper could not come to God and, and commune with Him apart from a proper blood sacrifice. And so these animals provided peace by giving their lives for the sake of the worshipers. That's what the sacrifices did. So when we carry that over into what Christ did for us, we recognize how great of a Savior we have. That it didn't require for us multiple sacrifices for us to be made right with God. Even though there's various facets or levels of our sin and the penalty that we deserve, right? And there's various sacrifices that need to be covered, yet Christ took our place. He was the substitution. He provided the substitutionary part. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ took our place. He was our substitution. But He also provided the removal of guilt, the expiation for us. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we would die to sin and that we might live to righteousness. By His wounds we are healed. So Christ is our substitution. Christ is our expiation, our removal of guilt. But He's also our reconciliation. You know this communal 
function that we talked about, in order for us to commune with God for them, they had to bring another separate sacrifice to do that. For us, we have one sacrifice that was sufficient. Romans 5, 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Romans 5.1 says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many different facets of our sin that require for us a serious sacrifice and multiple sacrifices, but God provided one way through Jesus Christ so that we could come directly to Him. And you know the Bible tells us that if that if you come to Christ and you believe that He is and believe that He died for the sake of those who will follow Him, that He was that perfect substitute for your sins, and the Bible says you will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is with your mouth that you simply confess that Jesus is Lord. And when you do that, the Bible says that you will be accepted as one of God's children, that that sacrifice will be taken and accepted by God, and you will have peace with God. Let me leave you with two points of application for us as church members primarily. Number one, our sin is no small thing before God. Our sin is no small thing before God. God is earnestly and completely holy. He cannot overlook our sin, can He? And so when we come to Him, we have to come to Him on His terms. And the good news for us is that He has dealt with our sins. He has placed all the penalty that you and I deserved on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. All the guilt that we should have received was given to Jesus. It was put on Christ at the cross so that He bore the wrath that we deserved. Just like those animals bore the wrath that those worshipers deserved, Jesus bore the full weight of the wrath. For them, it was only temporary. For us, it is permanent. He bore the wrath of God in our place. Friends, your sin is no small thing before God. And that is why God did the most drastic thing that He could do. He crushed His own Son so that He could grant you life. Your sin is not a small thing that He can just sweep under the rug. That would be unjust of God to just not deal with your sin at all. Instead, He dealt with it by putting, on, put it on, putting it on Christ at the cross. And that's why Jesus came. In fact, that's what His name means. He will save His people from their sins. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. We shouldn't take... We shouldn't dread or, or wallow in our sin and say, what, what a terrible person I am all the time. We should recognize the gravity of it, but also recognize that it's been put on Christ and that He's taken the punishment that we deserved. So number one, our sin is no small thing before God. Number two, we must take our worship of God very seriously. We must take, a, take our worship of God very seriously. When we come together to meet as a church, our goal is to worship God as He wants to be worshipped. And we ought to take that very seriously. 
The bloody sacrifices were for the Old Testament worshiper a continual picture, reminder that God is serious about sin. We don't see blood flowing like that for the sake of our sin all the time. And so for us, it's hard for us to think about how serious our sin is. But the good news is, is that God has provided a way for them to come to Him in faith and in continual repentance. And He set up this beautiful Levitical system so that God could have fellowship with His people. Think about what this means for these people. Instead of God just saying, I cast you off because of your sin, I'm no longer going to accept you into My presence. Instead, He comes to them. He says, I'm going to make a way for, for you and I to fellowship. And so we must take this fellowship with God just as seriously as He does. And that means that we have to guard the various elements of our worship. What would God think about an Old Testament worshiper who's thought, you know, I don't really want to offer my animals and I don't really want to buy any from anyone else. I think that it's terrible that they have to die and I'm, so I'm just going to offer what I want to offer. And I know since God is such an affectionate God that He will accept me. How do you think that would go over in, Levit- in the Levitical system? With how God established, uh, with how God established that he wanted to be worshipped. Do you think God would accept a worshipper like that? Well, we're going to find out about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. I think that will give us the answer to that question, which I think you already know. But God is not looking for you to give him what you want. God is not looking for you to leave this place with better feelings about yourself necessarily. God demands your best and God is most concerned with how He is satisfied with our worship. And that's what we ought to be most concerned with. Is God satisfied with what we have just brought as an offering to Him? So our singing, our giving, was that an acceptable sacrifice to God? An acceptable offering to God? What about our, our, our response to His Word? Was that acceptable in His sight? See, God demands our best and He demands that we do it His way, not our way. So in what ways do we treat God as not important or less important than someone or some something else in our church or in our home or in our jobs? In order for us to find out what God expects of us, particularly when it comes to corporate worship, we need to go to God. We need to go to His self-revelation, the Word of God, and find out what He wants. What kind of aspects does He expect to be in our worship? What kind of heart does He demand from us when we worship? You see, God has given us exactly what He desires of us in His Word. He has told us how He wants to be worshipped, and we simply need to go find out from the Scriptures and then submit ourselves to it. We have to acknowledge our guilt before Him, accept the sacrifice that was made in our behalf. Put all of our confidence in the sacrifice that was made for us, Christ, and His finished work and the grave that proved that it was acceptable. And then look to God for how He wants to be worshipped. Let's pray. Father, we understand this morning from looking at Your Word that our sin is no small thing to You. And that our worship of you should not be taken, uh, be done irreverently or flippantly, 
without thought of, of Your concerns and Your desires. And Lord, we admit that too many times, and when I say we, I include myself, that, that it, sometimes we go through the motions more than we'd like to admit. And we just think if we keep doing this, then, then things in life will be okay. And yet, Lord, this is not a magical type of exercise that we go through where we do one thing, You do another thing when we do it. But, but rather, it is a serious relationship that is being developed as we come to You. And it is something that, was, that, that cost You, Your Son, and that cost Your Son His life. And so we should not take uh, worship uh, in a way that's, that's flippant or, or that that's, doesn't see it as serious and grave. Lord, help us to recognize how, how You love to be worshipped in Your way. Help us to see clearly from Your Word what exactly You expect of us. And help us to turn to You for grace. Lord, we know that, that even the best of our acts can only be counted as filthy rags apart from Your grace. And so we're thankful for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ so that, that we can be pleasing to You now. And we're thankful for Your Word that instructs us how we can. Thank You most of all for, your, for our Savior, Your Son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place and took the penalty that we deserved. He was our sacrifice. It was as if we laid our hand on His head and He took our place. His blood was spilled out for us, sprinkled on the altar, and, and allowed to, to be offered up in smoke to You, an acceptable, soothing aroma to You. And Isaiah says that, that You were pleased to crush Your Son. And we know that that's the case, not because You enjoyed that specific act, but because You recognized, and we now recognize, that it brought us life. And that's why You were pleased in it. Lord, thank You for the life that we have in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.